Thanks, everyone. I'm going to be using some pictures from a, a kid's book a little later on and some funny graphics today because I, I think about our kids being with us um, in the service too. So if I'm using children's book illustrations, it's not to be, it's, it's just to include everyone, right? And isn't there, and the book that I'm talking, the Jesus Storybook Bible, um, man, that Bible spoke to me profoundly. It's the best children's Bible out there in my opinion. So if you don't have it, get it. Um, it's a great book for adults too. I often give it to people who are new believers so that they can get the big picture of the Bible in, in, a, quick, in a quicker format. So just total rabbit trail there. Sorry, everybody. But I want to speak today about three reasons we hide. We run and we hide. And I'm terrible at hiding fun things. I have no poker face for the good stuff. I can't keep a secret, even a good one. Uh, just this year, we had a gift for Jane's birthday, and I, I just spilled it the morning of. I'm like, it's just, I'm just terrible at keeping good secrets. Um, we tried to prank someone the other day. Um, we had this agreement amongst friends that we were going to play this prank on someone, and he walked in the door, and I just left the kitchen. I was like, I can't. I can't prank anybody. Um, I'm much better at hiding serious things. Can we all relate? Right? Something maybe I'm ashamed of, maybe my weaknesses, things I want to forget. I'm good at hiding from certain people. Tell me, please, that I'm not the only one who's been going through the grocery store and all of a sudden turns the corners like, look at the soup, right? Have we all done that? No, just me. Okay. There are always occasions when we hide, right? 2017 Columbia Business School study said that on average, a person hides 13 secrets, five of which they've never shared with another person. Is that true for you? I didn't try and figure out my secrets while preparing for this, and I didn't count it out, so I don't know if it's true for me. What are some of the things you hide from? Is it your past? Is it memories? People? Let's see. Am I making that noise? Okay. Oh, no problem. I just was like, <laughs> wasn't sure if it was me. <laughs> What do you hide from? Is it your past? Is it memories? Is it people? God? Difficult conversations? Opportunities? Risk? I want to tell three stories today of things we run or hide from and God's response to our hiding. I'm going to use the story of Adam and Eve, Jonah, and Elijah. I'll spend a little bit more time on the Adam and Eve story. Let's start with that in case you haven't heard that story. In the beginning, God creates the earth, right? He creates the animals and man and woman, and he creates us in the image of God. And it's interesting that long before we know God as a lawgiver or a deliverer or a judge, a king, or even a savior, we're introduced to God as an artist, and there's someone who wants to relate with us and create things. And God invites us into that process. We bear his image and he tells us, be fruitful and multiply and rule over the earth. There's only one thing we're asked not to do, right? 
or Adam and Eve, but I'm identifying with them. <laughs> Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But what do Adam and Eve do? We all know the story. They take the fruit, they eat from the tree. And I want to talk about their feelings. How do they feel once they realize they've disobeyed God and everything has now changed? It says in Genesis 3 that when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord among the trees. And then the Lord called out to the man, where are you? Where are you? And he replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. We can imagine in this story that there are two things happening here. The first is guilt. Guilt is recognizing something we've done or failed to do isn't right. And it doesn't match our values or our beliefs. And we feel bad and understand that something is wrong here. That's guilt. I like to imagine what could have happened if Adam and Eve, after they ate that fruit, they went running to God and said, we made a mistake, we did something wrong. How do, how do we make it right? What must be done? But there's more happening in this story. It's more than guilt. They also feel shame. Shame is the intense, Brene Brown, she's a social researcher. This is her definition of shame. It's not the only one or the only right one or the right one. It's just a definition for us to think about. Shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Something we've experienced, done, or failed to do makes us unworthy of connection. She used three examples, something we've experienced, something we've done, something we failed to do. I'm gonna use a silly example here because the first thing I thought of when I thought of shame, well, it's not the first thing, but it's a funny image that came to mind is the cone of shame, you know, dogs and the cone of shame. <laughs> I remember my dog, we had this dog. Uh, she was a Australian shepherd uh, husky mix. And I call, we called her Izzy Shumway Rudd because there were two families that we cared for her off and on. And Summer, there's this big Siberian Husky, and Summer would put this fleece coat on this dog, this bright yellow fleece coat. And I'm like, she's a Husky, she doesn't need a coat. And when we would put this coat on, her, on this dog, she'd go into the corner and cross her legs and put her nose down and just look at us like, to me. It was like this dog had this experience of shame and didn't want to be seen. Don't look at me. Now, there are also dogs. I realized I was trying to find a picture of a dog that looked ashamed, and I didn't realize there's this whole genre of guilty dogs on the internet. <laughs> so now I'm going to talk about dogs that are guilty, and they have done something wrong. So the first one is this beautiful husky who said, I ate the baby Jesus off our Christmas nativity scene. I know, I'm not looking forward to the second coming, <laughs> literally or figuratively. And then here's another one. I've eaten so many Legos, I could poop a Star Wars ship. 
So that's, they did something wrong. And then this third one is something we failed to do. And I like this because the owner and the dog are guilty. The dog says, I ate my dad's teeth. <laughs> but the dad says, I took my teeth out and left them out on the end table. <laughs> so they're both at fault, right? <laughs> now these are fun examples, but there's real pain from guilt and shame, right? And there are consequences. Adam and Eve end up leaving the garden. But I want you to hear the heart of God. God clothes them and covers their shame in that story. They're covered. And Jesus is always looking to connect with us. Don't hide. Nothing we have experienced, done, or failed to do should keep us from connecting with God. Romans 5, 8 says, God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't that beautiful? God comes for us. God comes after us. I love Isaiah 45, 22, when God says, let all the world look to me for salvation, for I am God and there is no other. We sang that today during worship. There's nothing better than you. No, there's nothing better than you. Sorry, I should not do that. I should follow Stanley's example. <laughs> those, who, those who look to God for help will be radiant with joy. No shadow of shame will darken their faces. There's nothing else, not possessions, not substances, not entertainment, not exercise, not another religion. There's nothing that can remove shame like Jesus. We can look to him. We just can look straight at God with no shame. In story after story, Jesus lifts people out of their shame and puts them in a place of honor. Just real quick, Matthew, the tax collector, right? He's rejected and hated because he's, he's um, working for the Romans and it feels like a betrayal to his own people. Yet Jesus invites him to a place of honor as one of his own disciples. There's a Samaritan woman at the wall. Well, Jesus names her shame with her failed relationships, he's, but then he sends her as a witness when women weren't even allowed to be witnesses. Though she's a Samaritan, he discloses his identity as the Messiah to her. It's like he restores her honor. Remember the Gadarene man who was demonized in the Greek Decapolis, and he went about naked, such a symbol of shame. He was exposed, and yet Jesus frees him clothes him. There's that clothing again. Restores him to his right mind and sends him away. Again, as a witness to what Jesus wants to do, Jesus restores his honor. Mary of Bethany, she sits at Jesus's feet and is being taught by a rabbi when women, again, aren't supposed to be taught by rabbis. But Jesus defends her position. Later, that same Mary of Bethany anoints Jesus' feet in, for in, in preparation for burial. 
And Jesus says, wherever the gospel is preached, everyone is going to know about her and about what has just happened. Talk about honor. I just want to shout it out to the world. Don't hide. Why are you hiding? Look to Jesus for salvation and you'll be radiant with joy. No shadow of shame will darken your face. Don't let shame rob you the presence of the voice of God, the presence and the voice of God. Okay, second story, Jonah. Why did Jonah hide? A completely different reason. <laughs> he hid because of judgment and anger. Ooh. I love the recap by Bible, Bible Project. I really recommend that website, bibleproject.com, for learning about the Bible. Jonah's story is recorded in the book of Jonah in the Bible. But the interesting thing about this story is it's a prophet. It's a story about a prophet. But the words, it's a book of, excuse me, I lost my train of thought. It's not a book about the words of a prophet. It's a book about the story of a prophet. All of the other books have the words of a prophet. But in this one, we're learning his story. Bible Project calls this the subversive story of a rebellious prophet who hates God for loving his enemies. <laughs> How's that for a Bible summary? <laughs> it's a little satirical, the book of Jonah. <laughs> it starts like this. God asks his prophet to get up and go on his feet and go to Nineveh. It's funny, if you read it in multiple translations, you really get the impression that Jonah was lying around. Because one says, get up and get on your feet. The other says, arise. The other says, um, go on. <laughs> so why was he laying around? I don't know. But God says, get up and go to Nineveh. And according to Jonah's contemporaries, Nineveh was a pretty rough place. It was a place known for violence, cruelty, plundering, and antagonism to God. It says people plotted evil against the Lord. If you look at Nahum and Amos, there was prostitution and witchcraft and commercial exploitation. Or if you know the VeggieTales version, they were slapping each other with fish. <laughs> Unfortunately, too many of us know the VeggieTales version better than the real version. <laughs> But God says, get up, preach to them. They're in a bad way, and I can't ignore this any longer. But what does Jonah do? He gets up and goes the other direction to Tarshish. It actually says he was running away from God. So the Lord sends a storm. And what does Jonah do? He lays down again. <laughs> He's sleeping in the hole of the ship. He really had an affinity for sleeping. Anyways, the, the, the sailors get upset and they start throwing up their arms and crying out to their gods. And finally, the captain makes his way down to the bottom of the ship and he says, Jonah, what are you doing? Sleeping? Get up. Pray to your God. Maybe your God will see we're in trouble and rescue us. 
And Jonah's like, yeah, I know this is all my fault. Just throw me overboard and everything's going to be fine. And so that's what they do. <laughs> they throw him overboard. And this strange, watery, big tomb comes like jaws <laughs> and swallows Jonah up. In the belly of the well, Jonah then offers a prayer. It's a really interesting prayer to read because it's a classic example of a sorry, not sorry prayer. He says, oh, thank you for rescuing me. Thank you for giving me life. I love you, Lord. You're incredible. Very poetic, very beautiful. And he says, I'll do whatever you want me to do. But he never repents of running away. So what's God's response to that? <laughs> the fish spits him out. <laughs> it's like God's like, whatever, Jonah. That's comical, isn't it? <laughs> and God says it again. Go to Nineveh and preach what I tell you. So Jonah goes still half-heartedly. He says, the city is going to be overthrown in 40 days. That's all he says. And the, cities repent, the city repents, and even the cows repent because they put sackcloth on them. It's, that's, it's fun. Everything in this story is kind of upside down. The prophet rebels and only obeys reluctantly and with a bad attitude. The pagan sailors repent. The king humbles himself, and the city is redeemed. How does Jonah's story end? Chapter four, Jonah was furious. He lost his temper. He yelled at God, God, I knew it when I was back home. I knew this was going to happen. That's why I ran off to Tarshish. I knew you were sheer grace and mercy, not easily angered, rich in love, and ready at the drop of a hat to turn your plans of punishment into a program of forgiveness. <laughs> He's so angry about God's kindness, he says, so God, if you won't kill them, kill me. I'm better off dead. Ouch. God says, what do you have to be so angry about? Jonah runs away again, and God asks him again, why are you so angry at my mercy? Do you have a right to be angry with me? And Jonah retorts, I do. I'm angry enough to die. We don't hear another word from Jonah. Here's the question. Have you ever been that angry? So angry that you wish you could die. Have you ever been that angry because of God's mercy towards someone else? So we don't know what happens to Jonah. The final words we hear are God's. And these are God's words to us. Don't I have a right to be concerned about this great big city of people who cannot tell their right hand from their left? Isn't that powerful? 
The book of Jonah is trying to mess with us. It's asking, are you okay with God loving your enemies? My question today is, is who is your Nineveh? Who is my Nineveh? Who would I say is not worthy of God's mercy? Who would I say is too violent, too cruel, too antagonistic, plotting too much evil, too corrupt, too prostituted? Who would I say is my Nineveh? Jonah hid because he was judging and shaming someone else. He considered them unworthy of his own time as well as God's mercy and compassion. Jonah had decided that they were flawed and didn't belong, but God says, I love them. I'm going after them. Let's not allow judgment to get us to run, hide, or sink and sleep in the hull of a ship. Let's get up. Let's get awake. Let's go. Amen? Elijah, the third story. Sometimes we hide because of disappointment. In my morning devotional times, I've been reading about the story of Elijah or listening to the story of Elijah. He's another prophet. He's another one of God's prophets in the story of Israel's kings. And Elijah stood for God, and he was a faithful and true witness. But unfortunately, after a powerful encounter with the prophets of Baal, Elijah starts running because Israel's leaders, Ahab and Jezebel, they hate him, and they want to kill him. They want him dead. So what does, what does Elijah do? He runs, and he hides. Says in 1 Kings 19.4, he went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors who have already died. These prophets are experiencing some deep depression, wouldn't you say? <laughs> if you ever feel that way, you're in good company with some incredible people but the Lord doesn't want him to stay there. An angel of the Lord appears to him and tells him to get up and go eat, and he provides food for him, and Elijah keeps running. But here's what's cool about Elijah. If he's going to run and hide, he picks a really good place to run and hide, too, in. He runs to Mount Sinai. It's a special mountain. It's a place where God had appeared to Moses in the bush, where the Ten Commandments had happened. It was a place where God historically had met with his people. There had been manifestations of thunder and lightning and earthquakes and wind and fire and storm. It was a throne room experience kind of place. And Elijah's saying, I'm going back there. I'm going to that, back to that place where we meet with God. It's a place of worship. The mountains, Mount Zion, Jerusalem, they always represent a place of worship. So Elijah goes there. He finds a cave and he sleeps. And then he hears the voice of the Lord. What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah replies, 
I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down their altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. He's had enough. So that's my question for you. What have you been giving yourself to? What have you thrown yourself into? What have you given yourself to? Or maybe what you feel like God has called you to, and you've just had enough. You're just tired. You're just disappointed. You're just like, this isn't working. What do you do in that sadness and pain when your hopes and expectations aren't met? What do you do when that happens? I know for me, when that happens, I can blame shift or I get angry with the people around me or circumstances around me. Or other times I run off alone to hide in a wilderness of my own making. There have been many times when I've heard God to say, say to me, what are you doing here? Why are you hiding? This is God's reply to Elijah. Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. For the Lord is about to pass by. Yes. That's what we do. We go out and we get in the presence of the Lord. Here's what happens next. A great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And then a voice said again, what are you doing here, Elijah? Go back the way you came. <laughs> Don't give up, Elijah. Don't hide in this cave. You can't stay here. Get up, eat, get going. We are all at different points in our faith journeys, right? Maybe you're lingering at the back of a cave, or perhaps you're out there at the mountain waiting for fire and earthquake. But regardless of where you're at, come out and stand on the mountain in the presence of God. Because when we stand in the mountain of worship, the Lord is about to pass by. He has something for you. God has something for you. I'd like to finish today just with a prayer. So if you don't mind just standing with me, I'd like us to pray. Lord, I pray for us as a body of believers. I pray for people who might be listening to this message wherever we are. I pray that we wouldn't be a people who hide, 
from you. We wouldn't be a people who hide from one another or from the mountain of your presence or from the people you love, your purposes in our life. We don't want to be a hiding people. I ask that you forgive us for giving into shame. Forgive us for believing the lies that we're not worthy or we can't belong or we can't connect to you or your people. Right now, in Jesus' name, I just break that lie off of us. I say there will be no shame. We will look to Jesus. We will look to the one who um, covers us and covers our shame and removes our guilt. Forgive us, God, for the times we're like Jonah and we run and hide because of judgment towards others. We just say, we turn from Tarshish and we turn to Nineveh. We want to get up and go and take the message that you've called us to take. And finally, Lord, forgive us for giving into disappointment and giving into despair. Forgive us for that, Lord. We don't want to do that. We want to seek your presence. We want to hear you, not the way you came in the past, through the wind or the fire or the earthquake, but we want to be able to hear your voice in the way you want us to hear it today, in a new way. And we want to go back to the task at hand. I just bless um, this church. I bless your people with radiant faces. <laughs> In Jesus' name, amen.